The reason I was reaching out to you is because, for me at least, the quote-unquote punk scene seems to be heavily dominated by male opinion, and I wanted to get the female perspective also from someone that's also a professor, uh, that's an expertise, and also teaches this. Um, and so that's why I thought it was, and I liked your, um, as I spoke to you earlier, I liked your your resume, and I felt like you're somebody that was really opinionated, someone that had a good outlook on things, um, and also from our previous conversations. So what I'd like to do is to kind of jump in, and the thing where I was coming from is, and I don't know if you know this, Epics is a um, streaming site that just had a, a punk music documentary with Iggy Pop as the host, and I feel like we're always given this general overview of punk music and it has this now formulaic 
concept to it of it, it, it emotes a sound to people when you say the word punk music. They assume it's going to sound something like this. Or when you say folk music, it's going to sound like this. And rap music sounds like this. And on my musical journey of understanding and going through as a songwriter and moving through different quote-unquote genres, you know, for me, it's just all music. And I think all artists feel that way, but it helps. A title helps the general public disseminate what they will enjoy or not enjoy, right? It's, it's marketing is what it is, right? Oh, exactly. Well, two, for, for example, um, song pick um, Steppenwolf, Cream, and, uh, and so on, that as teenagers listening to it, we just considered it to be rock music. It wasn't until later that we hung a label on it and called, for example, you know, Born to be Wild, um, heavy metal. So everything... Who knew? Everything was... <laughs> right, right, who knew? Everything was rock music, rock and roll, right? Basically, any, any kind of pop music was considered rock and roll? Sure. Yeah, even, you know, even if we go back to the mid to late 1940s, uh, with Frank Sinatra and his Bobby Soxer fan base. That, that's one of, uh, if you will, the influencers or, or, you know, influencers or progenitors of, of rock. You know, you, you've got one of your first, if you will, teen idols in Sinatra or pick um, Pat Boone, uh, any of those guys. And two, what what they were putting out there essentially was 32-bar song form. They were singing about idealized romantic love, and they had a beautiful orchestral soundtrack underneath it or a big band, a swing band. So, but we look at those and say, well, yeah, this, you know, this is where rock music got its start or, you know, a contributor. There's hidden persuasion within your eyes Your charming indifference is but a disguise I would be glad to love you if love is in the deal but I must feel quite certain that the love is for real. Your hidden persuasion seems quite sincere. Perhaps my evasion is meaningless fear. Since every gain requires the element of chance Here's hoping at least we'll find Your hidden persuasion 
seems quite sincere Perhaps my evasion is meaningless fear Since every gain requires that element of chance Here's hoping at least we'll find romance Here is hoping at least we'll find romance I don't know if anybody would ever think that Sinatra was over Elvis for, for being the architect <laughs> for being the architect of rock music but would they refer to it at any point at that time as rock and roll was there Not any? Is there any? Is there anything? Anything? Or did they call it, you know, pop music? Or do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, right. No, it was it was considered to be popular music, but too you had um, pick Nat King Cole, um, all of all of those guys from the late '40s and into the early 1950s. Yes, enter uh, the Million Dollar Quartet, right? Yep. Um, but the, the which is which would be Carl Perkins? It would be Elvis Presley, um, Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry, Lew- Jerry Lee Lewis, who's my fourth? Right, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash. I almost said Roy Orbison, but it's Johnny Cash. Right. And so, but it's it's the formula, right? So we're singing about idealized love. The chord qualities, the changes, set us up for what you hear in Elvis, in Chuck Berry, in Fats Domino, all all of the early guys. It's all there. It's just that you have this next iteration of artists that builds on what came before. And And they put their own personal spin on it. So if we take a look at, at early, or some folks call it proto-punk, okay? and I'm back to influencers. So if we're looking at roughly 1965 to 73, and folks wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily think about punk in you know, the mid-60s, but if you listen to, for example, Question Mark and the Mysterians, 96 Tears, or you listen to the MC5, um, Kick Out the Jams, which they released in 1969. Those are, are two really good examples of, if you will, the foundation. What, what serves as that launch pad for what you and I would probably say, oh, yeah, that's punk rock. Can you do me a favor? Can you? Can you? I'm gonna come here for a second. Can you? Before you keep going, hold the thought. Can you just go back to you had said about the chord changes? What is something about the chord changes that made rock rock music that was different from earlier pop music? Sure. So we have we have chord changes that that have their their derivation in blues in. Jazz, most notably, notably Western swing. Okay, so, so I'm talking early 1930s now, 
And then very, very simple song forms, what we would call rural or country blues. So, for example, in rural blues, you've got a tonic, okay, a four chord, a subdominant, a five chord, usually with a seventh thrown on top of it, so a little, a little tinge, a little dissonance, and then back to tonic. What you'll hear in blues will be an alteration between the tonic and the subdominant. So one four, one four, then we'll toss in a five seven and back to the tonic for cadence. Okay. Then that that so that's that's your harmony. Then it's up to, if you will, the vocalizations of the singer to throw in, if you will, the color. So, for example, what we call note bending, okay, so glisses and sliding up to pitches, um, blue notes, which is, consists of flat three, five, and seven on the interval scale. And two, with some blues singers, um, that flat three, five, or seven isn't, if you will, a true third, fifth, or seventh. It's somewhere, if you will, in between. Um, we talk about microtones, for example. And you hear those a lot in the music of Eastern Hemisphere cultures. So, so, so when you have these structures for um, blues or, or um, country folk, they those people tend to those artists or the people writing those songs all tend to follow the same sort of patterns within that of that genre of whatever we're going to call it, whatever you're doing. So the early folk, right. So folk songs way back with, you know, Woody Guthrie or predating Woody Guthrie also that they were to sing about simple life. So they would follow a certain chordal structure with the story and then a chorus. Correct. And then that's absolutely. Yes. I'm sorry. Absolutely. But do you have to remember that meant that I'm, go, I'm going to go out on a limb and say 95% of these performers, and, and two, this is also part of, of the punk generation, um, they're not graduates from the Juilliard School. They are, they are self-taught as musicians. That's a big difference. Yeah, that that's, is, a no, that's, difference. That's, that's a huge difference. But the, so my whole the thing is that everything comes back to basically folk music slash the blues that sets the the tone for everything moving forward from basically like so like for me so the first time when you just talked about sinatra it's the first time i would have ever even thought of that because i don't look at that i look at that folk music and the blues fueled obviously rock music Right and moving forward. So for me, it's like nineteen, you know, the thirties, forties, folk and blues, and then into the fifties, then rock and roll takes off, and then from there you get into your proto punk and moving forward. But it all stems from folk music, and the folk, and we get to blues because of slavery, right? Because when the slaves came over, they were using talking drums to have uprisings on the plantations. So slave owners took away the drums and said, "Here, here's a guitar." Right, so you you have this thing, this this movement of music, basically based around slavery. Is I think you, we could start it. Rock and roll is born out of slavery, 
Would you agree with that? Or it's certainly a large component. So, so for example, the note bending that I reference with respect to blues singers that actually comes from Negro spiritual. Also, too, think think about if you will the the performed lyric in rock music. In spiritual, many words are shortened. So the, the term we're looking for is elision, or certain syllables are cut off, or, for example, um, there is no TH sound in the language within the African diaspora. So instead of hearing that, there you go, the Queen's English, you hear that. Oh, okay. That, okay, I got it. And so, so there's, there's logic. So th- if you think about, um, if you will, delivery of lyrics in rock music, right? So how, how words get softened in rock lyrics, okay? Much of that ha- owes its derivation to Negro spiritual, um, the minstrel shows again, you know, Civil War and post Civil War. I got a robe up into that kingdom, into that good news. I got a robe up into that kingdom, into that good news. I'm gonna lay down this world on the shoulder of my cross. Gonna take it home to my Jesus, saying that good news. I got a harp of in that kingdom, and that's good news. I got a harp of in that kingdom, and that's good news. I'm gonna lay down this world on the shoulder of my cross. Gonna take it home to my Jesus, and that's good news. I got a song up in that kingdom, and that's good news. I got a song up in that kingdom, and that's good news. I'm gonna lay down this world on the shoulder of my cross. Gonna sing my song for my Jesus. I'm gonna play on my harp for my Jesus. I'm gonna put on my robe for my Jesus. I'm gonna wear my crown for my Jesus, and that's good So there's no one-size-fits-all when we're trying to to nail down the derivation of rock music. There are a lot of of myriad elements that that play significant roles in the development of that particular music. You know, if we talk about Elvis Presley, for example, if, if you read extensively about him as, as a youngster, a teenager, right? He, he was crossing the railroad tracks and hanging out in juke joints. And so... So he'd, he be, influ- was, he he'd was, be influenced by that kind of vernacular, correct? He, he would be, yeah. growing up around that, he'd be singing that, he would be influenced by it. Absolutely. And two, that's what, part of the reason, early on in his career, some people that heard his music without seeing him thought he was black. 
and two part and also part of, of which um, made his his career t- trajectory at the beginning much more difficult. But did but it also make him cross? But, but, all- but did it also make him cross over between two? Ethnicities, ethnicities, because he started in the black community and then was able to go back to the white. Was he, and he was accepted by both, I assume. It took a while. If you look too, if you examine um, early uh, early footage of Elvis Presley, so, I mean, people were aghast at his performance style. You know, if you will, the um, the the, the staid, um music aficionado community. Um, they didn't care for his style. They didn't care for his perform uh, his stage presence. Do you, do you name it, Sully? They probably didn't like anything that, that Elvis was doing. But the youth culture of that time, so the mid-1950s, and there was a lot going on to fuel youth culture. Absolutely adored Elvis Presley because he was speaking their language musically and he was, he was in his own way rebellious. Well, if he's doing race music, that is rebellion in a ultra white conservative country. Yeah, absolutely. And two, if you think about it um, for us and, you know, what we call proto punk and, and punk music, Similar things were occurring that that fueled the music. Now, I always tell my students that that music is a barometer of culture. If you if you want to gain a deeper understanding of what's happening around you societally, start taking a serious look at what artists are producing. I want to. I want to. Go back for a second, because you, you actually, when you mentioned the, when you mentioned this and that, as my as a songwriter myself, and you write lyrics and you work on something, and you're like, oh, I'm going to shorten this. I'm going to say I'm going to say that instead of you know that. You're right. I'm going to lose the th because it also sings better. So, and you know, obviously in rock music or pop music or whatever, or ain't right. We're going to use ain't. We're gonna yes. mm-hmm. lots of contractions, or we're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna put that apostrophe anywhere we can, right? Or we're gonna drop letters off. So my mind, like literally, when you just said that, I'm like, oh, I'm I've been referencing Negro spirituals without even knowing it, and that's my own naivete, right? My own ignorance that I did not know that. I'm just taking that because it sounds good, right? But there you go. This is where this is being born. Did earlier artists like Elvis, who was doing race music and was crossing over, did they originally sing like that in the early 50s and some were told to not to sing the Queen's English, don't sing like that? Almost like, like Pat Boone. I always joke about Pat Boone. It's like the, you know, the, the whitest version of, of black music. You made me cry when you said Goodbye, ain't that a shame? My tears fell like rain. Ain't that a shame? You're the one to blame. You broke my heart when you said. 
There you go. Uh, and of, co- of course, too, uh, if you listen to, for example, the very, very early music of the Beatles, I'm, I'm going to call it, you know, the, we'll call it the the Hamburg Adventure Year. Uh, you know, the, their sound was very raw, very unpolished, yet popular. But as, as they developed a following of fan base and we're starting to make some money and, and uh, employed management, their style evolved. And I don't mean just their, their stage presence and the visual image, but musically they involved, they evolved. And so what started, you know, if you listen to what my Bonnie and then listen to pick something, um, something a little bit later, you know, under, uh, Brian Epstein's tutelage, they became a much more polished band, both musically. In fact, even if you go back to Love Me Do and you listen to the music, forget the vocal line, but just listen to the music, it is very, very simple. I'm, so I'm, I'm, back to the, I'm back to that really simple rock progression. Tonic, subdominant, Dominant seven back to tonic, and listen to the bass line. It's a seventh grader's bass line. Shame on me for saying that, but it's very, very simple. But it's, but it's memorable, not, but memorable as hell. <laughs> oh yes, and and that is the key to their success. You know, I mean, it's not it's not a complex walking bass line. Like you would hear, you know, pick uh, anything that BB King would play. It's just very, it's it's all quarter notes. So that, you know, there, there's no excitement there. It's what it's what happens in the lyric. It's what happens in John Lennon's vocal style and the delivery that makes that song so incredibly successful. Dude, just um, just like their cover of um, Twist and Shout. Same thing. The song itself is very simple, but their cover version, it, again, it's in the delivery and the the presentation. Which actually, you know, it's funny you bring that up because Twist and Shout, now I'm hearing in my head versus the original, is very <laughs> punkish. It's very like raw kinks, right? If you think Absolute, about it, the, yeah. the delivery mm-hmm. with Paul screaming, um, and it's got an edge to it. It has an, um, like the amps are being pushed.
And to, but too, that's also that's also John Lennon. You know, if you, if you comp- compare the two of them, John John Lennon is um, he he's your he's your your blues delivery guy, right? He's he's your Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, he's he's your pound the piano until it, it screams. Uh, Right. So, in other words, just the raw intensity in his vocal delivery, and and his musical style. Absolutely, uh, uh, definitely. There's a dotted line relationship between pick any of John Lennon's songs. I, um, I'm thinking, come together. Um, then where pick. does then where and does Paul sit? Then where does Paul sit? With that, if if he's the blues, uh, so if, if Lennon's the blues angle of it or the the punk of the band, where does where does Paul is he the Sinatra? He's the Sinatra Pat Boone guy. Yes, um, he's you know he's he's our polished big band you know uh, orchestration, right? Um, so Paul's tunes, right? When I'm when I'm sixty four, okay. Um, yesterday, Michelle. Uh, those are, you know, pop ballads. Th- those are those are all um, Sir Paul McCartney, and that's his style. So he's he's, if you will, there you go, the smooth operator. <laughs> <laughs> As you just, you just quoted Sade, nice. Um, I thought you'd like that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. So then, Paul brought a higher level musicianship, if you will, to the Beatles while John kept it grounded in folk blues rock. Yeah, I think that's a good way to, to, to put it. And two, you know, home influence, again, if, if you read extensively about the Beatles, uh, Paul's father was in a town band um, and he was he was a huge fan of swing music and and so you know think about the, you know what what children are exposed to musically in the home a little bit you know little so a little bit different for Paul than John Lennon so so that that's what yeah, that's yeah. what each you know bring you know contributes brings to the to the collective. So if you had to, and, and I want to keep on topic here because I mean we can. There's so many ways we can diverge these conversations because I find them so fascinating. How important? Let's go through the importance of, because these names keep coming up, and sometimes I think I roll my eyes. I'm like, oh, really, Elvis again? How important? <laughs> how important was Elvis, or was Blind Lemon that important as a blues artist, or BB King, or Let's? Or Sun House, who, if you had to say this guy, right? Wh- who did Lomax and uh, John Lomax? Who was the blues guy that he produced that he brought to? He was, oh, um, it, how did Ledbetter? Yeah, Ledbetter. How? Yeah, Ledbelly. Yeah. Led yes. How? How important is Ledbelly? How important was that moment? Black girl, black girl. Don't lie to me Tell me where did you sleep last night In the pond, in the pond oh, Where the sun never shine I wish you would Oh, not to 
black girl, black girl, where will you go? I'm gone where the cold wind blows. In the pine, in the pine, where the sun never shines, I will shiver all night through. Black girl, black girl, don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? In the pond, in the pond, where the sun never shines. I wish you were all night through. My husband was a real man, killed a mile and a half from here. His head was found in a driver's wheel, and his body haven't been found. Black girl, black girl, where will you go? I'm gone by the cold wind blows. You called me to weep, and you called me to moan. You called me to leave my home. Right, how important was Elvis? How important are the Beatles? Are these major markers in the development of music? moving forward are those artists themselves or are those artists the the figurehead of what was already going on and it's in its own scene does that make sense sure um elvis presley seminal influence in rock music absolutely no question uh, and to think about it um all these years after elvis's death he still has an amazing fan base. His, his recordings still sell like hotcakes. Um, he, his estate rakes in millions of dollars every year. And two, if you think about Elvis Presley, his accomplishments. So when he was in Hawaii and, and did the first satellite TV um, performance how he, how elvis changed his style over the course of his and if you think about it relatively short musical career he kept his fan base with him so if you go from early elvis presley rockabilly elvis presley to a more polished style rock elvis presley to the Las Vegas years, the in the ghetto. I'm right. I'm gonna right. I'm going to try and sing disco. I'm gonna do a little country western. I'm gonna put out a gospel album. Gee, where have we heard that in the most recent history? And yep, I'm gonna put on a sparkly jumpsuit and you know and be resident at Las Vegas. Yet his fans stayed with him. He managed to reinvent himself at key markers in his career, maintain his popularity, maintain his fan base, and, if you will, maintain a healthy bank account despite some questionable management. 
but still had his own troubles. Yeah. And yeah. died well, way too young. Yeah, very young. It, yeah, it, and, and Colonel Parker did rip him off. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's uh, a whole other that's a whole other show, Colonel Parker. Oh yes, absolutely. So, so you're, uh, you're right though, but his his fans stuck with him, and much like I would say David Bowie, I would say much like mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones. I, I don't feel like people real. I think they're a, they're real fans. Or the diehard fans, the ones that start with them early, cut Elvis a lot of slack as he moved forward, because I think it felt honest. Actually, there was an actual. I don't. I feel like everything that Elvis did, even though he's kind of whacked out a little bit on, on drugs at that point, and and with his painkillers and everything, but it was still, I think, authentic to Elvis. And I feel like everything that the Beatles did was also authentic to the Beatles. I feel like anything that any blues artist has done has been pretty authentic. Oh, absolutely. And two, if you can uh, Elvis honestly set the pace for the others. So think about it. You have, and I consider it Elvis Presley Incorporated. So you have his recordings, right? You have the music publishing arm, right? We're going to go and buy Elvis Presley sheet music so we can learn it. We have... Elvis Presley on film, right? Um, um, Viva Las Vegas and and all of the films he made. Then we have, right, the Elvis TV specials, Elvis in Vegas. All of of these things, think about the market saturation of Elvis Presley, right? You can go, then you, then, you know, post, Right, post mortem, we have Graceland, right? Go and tour Graceland and go buy an Elvis bobblehead doll. In in other words, he he is across all all of the market segments, not just music. And that's pre- so he's got TV, radio, film, Graceland, right? Is it, and is all he is he the first musical artist to do that? Is that him? Is there another artist in history up to that point that's been able to do that? Up to that point, I'm saying. Like, is he really the first artist to... Now that I'm thinking about it, I think you're right. With, with, within the genre of rock music, certainly. Yes, that's, that's what if, I'm if, um, Obviously, there, there, are, there are composers within the classical canon that came close for, the, for their time. You know, for example, um, George Friedrich Handel had his own opera company, owned several theaters, besides being a composer, um, um, an organist, and he also held the um, uh, the patent for music publishing, so the, the royal patent. So yeah, so if, yeah, I like to I like to, to study Handel for that reason. So same thing, but obviously, uh, you know, seventeen seventeen hundreds, um, the technology was different. But yeah, Elvis, Elvis really set the pace. If you had to pick in, um, sorry, if you had to pick, I don't know, two two Elvis songs that you thought if someone talked about, hey, I'm a punk fan, and you're like, well, you have to listen to Elvis Presley. And like, I don't like, I don't like that kind of music. 
what two songs from Ellis would you say, no, no, check this out. You would like these two songs. They're, they're going to be punk-inspired. They're rock-inspired. They, they, they fueled this movement that you were listening to. What, what, are there two songs you could, off the top of your head, pick out? Um, oh, let's see. Um, well, one would certainly be Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah. And then the other, uh, and th- this is for the lyric, not necessarily um, the accompanying music, but in the ghetto. Oh, interesting. I didn't see that coming. Why in the ghetto? Okay, well, this is, this is Elvis taking up social ills. As the snow flies On a cold and gray Chicago morning A poor little baby child is born in the ghetto And his mama cries Cause if there's one thing she don't need Is another hungry mouth to feed in the ghetto Well, don't you understand The child needs a helping hand He'll grow to be an angry young man someday I Take a look at you and me Are we too blind to see? Do we simply turn our heads and look the other way? Well, the world turns Hungry little boy with the running nose Plays in the street as the cold wind blows in the ghetto And his hunger burns So he starts to roam the streets at night And he learns how to steal and he learns how to fight in the ghetto Then one night in desperation, the young man breaks away. He buys a gun, he steals a car, tries to run, but he don't get far, and his mama cries. As a crowd gathers round, an angry young man face down in the street with a gun in his hand in the ghetto. And as her young man dies On a cold and gray Chicago morning Another little baby child is born In the ghetto And his mama cries Which, another, another right, which is the basis of of political folk music and punk punk music. That's absolutely sure. Uh, you know, too. That's that's right up there with um, a tad off topic. But so the the Supremes, uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes singing "Love Child."
I don't know if that's off topic at all, actually. I think that that's actually would be still on topic with that song. Okay, but so... Because that's pretty racy. If you think about it, that's pretty racy at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so Elvis singing about, you know, um, uh, juvenile delinquency, right? Stealing a car, um, cop chase, getting caught, shot, and boom. Uh, and that's how, that's how it is in the ghetto. So, so singing about all that entire spectrum of social ills. That was, that was you know, that, that's a far, far cry from teddy bear and blue suede shoes. <laughs> it is. And, but I think, so when, we, when we're looking at these things now, so you, we talked about, so to go back to what you said about the progression there now musically, is that song fitting the the tonic and the structure of what we're calling rock music slash punk music? Is it, is it following that, that song or no? Or we're just dealing with specifically with the, the lyric in the ghetto. It's honestly, it's strictly the lyric because if you listen under, you know, to the harmonies underneath, um, this, this is Elvis also, um, experimenting with disco. You know, you've got a big lush orchestra underneath, uh, and and some some very complex uh, arrangements. You know that, that support that lyric. So you've got a lot of string sweetener and and and. Uh, two same the same thing with Love Child. You know, it's it's that seventies disco dance. But the, but, right? but the lyric isn't actually representing the feel-good 70s, right? It's actually there are hard-hitting lyrics that are extremely intelligent and saying something. Right. It's not Rolls Royce no. at the car wash. Exactly. Exactly. But so, yeah, so Elvis Presley, huge influencer. Uh, and not just punk, but across you know across all genres. You know, I honestly I think that that aspiring rock musicians study Elvis Presley the way um, classical musicians would would study the works of Johann Sebastian Bach or study the works of Beethoven. You know, we we learn from those that that come before us. What about, so you have Elvis going on in the 50s, but you also have the Motown scene. Oh, yes. So let's bring it back to Michigan. Let's get to Detroit, because I think we are, I I don't want to give everything to Detroit. (laughs) I don't know. I just feel like you kind of have to, even though I'm a New Yorker, you know, and I'm always like, oh, Greenwich Village and the Lower East Side and... But the more, right, but the more we we look at, because that was the folk movement, but how, so we have the folk movement going on, but at the same time we have Motown going on, right? And what is Motown a response to? Let's start with that. Can we start with Motown and then get into like the MC5 and what was going on there, if that's okay with you? Sure. Um, Wow. Barry Gordy, right, who, who just decided he's going to retire. Um, gotta, gotta love that. Um, How old is he? Ninety. 
always that 90, um, not, not quite, goodness. Uh, but, but think about this. He was, uh, is a very shrewd businessman with a fascination, a zest for life, and a love of music. He saw an opportunity and made the most of it. If you come to Detroit, you can, you can tour Hitsville. You can visit the Motown Museum, and it's been preserved just as it was in the early 1950s. So, so, and it was the house, and it has all of all of the original, you know, 1950s, right? The mid-century furniture, uh, right down to the old telephones, and um, if you go down, it's actually the basement of the house, which was the infamous Studio A, and. All of the old music stands are down there. The old switchboard is there. It's, it's absolutely amazing. What he did, there was um, there, there was a lot of talent. In fact, you know, Detroit's a hard town for music. It, it's it's hard scrabble. It's competitive, which is probably probably why. When you read artists' bios, you'll see, oh, so-and-so was born in Detroit. Oh, so-and-so lived in Detroit. Oh, so-and-so went to school in Detroit. But they're elsewhere. It, it's very, very competitive. I liken it to throwing a piece of bread onto the sidewalk and watching seagulls come after it. <laughs> so but so it sounds like it's actually it's like an incubator for to for if you again like New York if you can make it here you can make it anywhere you're the it's fueling itself there's so much competition and it's at such a high level that it's pushing everybody to become better musicians better songwriters almost like Nashville they say like you know everyone's like oh I'm going to Nashville to be a songwriter and like everybody's a songwriter in Nashville that's the whole point right everyone is fighting or like you said fighting over the same piece of bread which means you're going to have to fight the hardest to write the best songs to be the best performer or be the best musician or producer or engineer, correct? Absolutely. So what Gordy was doing, essentially, he saw, for example, the product, um, we'll call it the girl groups, that Phil Spector. Oh, yeah, look look what those Brill Building folk are doing, and Spector and his wall of sound. You know what? I can do that, and I can do it better. And two, the, the singing tradition here in Detroit, in the black churches, is absolutely amazing. Again, folks, folks incredibly talented, hiding in plain sight. A lot, pardon me. A lot of the groups that he signed, they were ki- they were kids that were just hanging out on the street corner singing, you know, four part harmony that they'd learned in church. Sing, right? You know, if they were singing in pick, um, People's Baptist Church Choir or wherever around the city. Well, because it's a, it's a way of life. It's part of their, it's what they did for fun. Absolutely. Um, and he harnessed that energy, brought, the, brought those, <coughs> excuse me, those youngsters in into his, I'm going to call it his makeshift studio because it really was a, you know, um, 
a grassroots, uh, you know, cottage industry and turned out some amazing product. Two, it was also that time when things were changing in Detroit. The 1950s really signals the beginning of what we call white flight and segregation, first in the schools um, and spread throughout the city. So this is this is when folks were moving out of the neighborhoods. Pick, uh, oh goodness, um, Sherwood Forest, Rosedale Park, Boston, Addison, and they were moving farther north and farther west. So you could almost draw a circle around Detroit. In fact, that's that's why we talk about Eight Mile. That Eight Mile was the cutoff. So. People were leaving the city to be north of Eight Mile. They wanted bigger, better, bolder homes. Um, they they wanted better schools for their children. All you know, all of the above. Barry Gordy harnessed what was here and polished and professionalized those young musicians, those young singers, and turned out. A fantastic product. You know, we talk about we talk about the Motown sound, and the things too, the things that Gordy did from as a result of his own experience. You know, one of one of the um, you know the local subtitles for for the Motown studios, um, it was known as the factory. Yes, he, you know, he had yeah. his his arrangers. Uh, the string sweetener that you hear in the Motown recordings, those are all Detroit Symphony Orchestra musicians. The guys would finish playing at, uh, well, DSO was playing at Ford Auditorium at that time. They'd finish their concerts at 10, 1030. They'd go get a bite to eat, and then they'd go up, up to, um, to Hitsville, and they'd play recording sessions until 3 or 4 in the morning. So with the music itself, what mm-hmm. would you describe Motown, the style of Motown music, a derivative of? Where does it, what, because it, he created its own sound, right? It's not just the sweetener. There's, there's rhythms to it that are, that are not, that I think are unto Motown. That Motown, like, I didn't feel like there was anything like that before Barry Gordy started doing that. Is there a, so what is Motown? Like you had to describe musically, what is it? Where does it come from? Is it, is it out of blues? Is it out of pop music? Is it out of, what? where, where does it come from? It comes from R&B, from early gospel tradition, and I'm talking Reverend James Cleveland, um, Fred Hammond, so, right? So R&B, early gospel, um, again, the, the black church. So, the, so that choral tradition in Detroit. Then, too, um, Detroit has a huge reputation for jazz. So that, that's the other component that you hear. So, so he hold on. So he fused three styles of black music: gospel, R and B, and jazz, and then brought in 
these young singers right. with these songs and just kind of put the strings on behind it and, and built that up. Added the sweetener, sure. And two, he was formulating what he heard in, again, coming out of the Brill, the Brill Building um, at, at that place in time. So pick um, the Ronettes, the Shirelles, um, oh, the, um, some of the other, you know, some of the other Brill Building artists. And two, it was similar in concept when you think about it, Sully, right? Brill Building, you've got... Carol King and company that are right that are are in cubicles with pianos writing writing songs. It was not that not that different here at Motown. He had Holland Dozier Holland writing. He had he had his arrangers. Um, Paul Reiser is one uh, that that is still in the city and doing doing some interesting work. And then his artists, his, his stable of singers, and they put it all together. And, he, and so Mastermind, I have the utmost respect for Barry Gordy in terms of the way he put together his operation and handled everything from talent acquisition Right through this, you know, the recording process, um, distribution, and sales. He had a hand in everything. He sure did. Absolutely. El- uh, Elvis. Elvis should have worked with him. <laughs> now that would have been an interesting, interesting situation. Can you imagine? I can, I, I, huh? I would. I, now I'm like drooling, thinking about what that would have been like. I think Barry Gordy would have been the best for Elvis. I, I would be and see what that would have come out of. Because there is also that richness of Barry Gordy of... He was still making black music for black people, but it was crossing over. And I mean, it's... I mean, Motown, everybody... I mean, I have... I, I teach, you know, tennis, and I have 12-year-old kids that still know all the songs. Right, everybody knows these songs. They're just... They're some of the best written songs ever. And, and, and it's such a high quality. So I can't imagine what that would be like if you had somebody like Elvis come in and work with Barry Gordy, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, and two, think about it. Um, Barry Gordy's, I mean, the house band that was supplemented by the DSO musicians, the Funk Brothers. Right? So so they, they essentially were, were all um, jazz funk musicians. So, so the, if you will, the, the mix that he put together and the way he handled it administratively is amazing. And then the overlay, you have, you have the concept of black entrepreneurship in the late 50s and early 60s. Plus, he was, his artists were polished to to the nth degree. He was he was making a case for African Americans not as, if you will, um, juvenile delinquents, as criminals, as gangsters, but as up, upright, upstanding, you know, uh, contributing members of society. 
you know, one of, one of my favorite favorite Barry Gordy stories, uh, the Supremes' first album. Um, he had he actually bought um, diamond solitaires for all three girls and put them right um, left hand ring finger, and for the for the photo shoot for that. To keep, uh, if you don't know, no, to, to polish and maintain their image. That's hilarious. That's but smart, right? Real, how smart is that? That he would. So, so did, did was there any backlash from in the Detroit scene from Motown as it got more and more um, popular and pervasive into the the public zeitgeist? You know what I'm saying? Like, did, it, did was there a backlash like Stadium Rock? You know, in my earlier episodes, we had talked about how bombastic things had gotten with like Led Zeppelin, and just to this point where these bands became so big and stadium rock. Did, did that ever happen with the Motown scene in Detroit where there was this musical backlash? Not really. Uh, I mean, obviously we've, we have other musical styles and, and I'm going to point to Bob Seger, who is legend here. Uh, and, you know, we can, we can talk about, Pick Alice Cooper and and some you know, other individual artists, but was there you know was there a, a musical uprising, you know if you will an anti Motown you know or or a challenge to the Motown sound here? No, everyone embraced it. Uh, Black and white, everybody embraced it. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, honestly, there were probably there were likely more white teenagers, you know. Uh, listening to Motown records, buying Motown records, going to Motown concerts than than black kids. I mean, that that too. That's the beauty of Motown and Barry Gordy is that his his operation musically crossed all boundaries. Two, those artists again look at the lyrics, examine them. They were all singing about about things that everyone identifies with, whether it's the boy meets girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy finds another girl, right? Uh, so, so any you know, again, teen teen angst, uh, love relationships. Everyone identifies with those things, you know. Those those aren't inherent to to any one population. That's what he did wonderfully well, and he had a terrific eye for talent, and he was fastidious with respect to quality control. Every Friday, you know, uh, every Friday morning at at Hitsville was quality control session and it, it it was whoever happened to be available it was a rate the records um, scenario and so yeah too you know just as you have someone proofread your work right if you're, if you're writing an article or something and it's always good to have that's why we have editors sully uh that they well, no, they, yeah, they no, catch. absolutely. Yeah, they're saying, hey, yeah, this doesn't sing well. This is not right. This doesn't make sense. That this does make sense. Absolutely. 
Sure. Um, and his his line was, if you if you had one dollar in your pocket, and your choice was between this record and a sandwich, which would you buy? And and if your choice was the sandwich, okay, then why why are you choosing the sandwich over this music? So, so it was about fact finding and. If something didn't pass quality control, they went back to the drawing board and fixed it. But in Motown, it was about artists being, meaning musical, being performers. Were there artists in Motown that were that were performers and writers? Because then you look at somebody like the, you know, Iggy Pop, right, or, or Jim Osterberg, where, you know, he's got something to say in the 60s. And he, want, he was a drummer, and he wants to go do something, and he wants to write about it, right? Um, or you got, yeah. like, you know, John Sinclair, you know, and I'm sure you guys have talked about him at nauseum about in Detroit. And, you know, and his influence over Wayne Kramer and the MC5 and pushing a political agenda. At some point, like, are there, and I want to get back to what I just said, but are there any Motown performers that did that? Or is, is and now we're gonna. I think we're gonna bring up Marvin Gaye. Would that be Marvin Gaye? Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson. Those three. Right off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, I'm, I'm think. Don't quote me, but I was also thinking about Wicked Wilson Pickett. Every way this night is 
So who so who start, was was that Marvin Gaye that started that? Did Marvin Gaye is the one that said, "Hey, I'm going to do something a little bit more." Stevie Wonder, uh, and two. I mean, Stevie Wonder is our keyboard guy out of Motown. Right, little little okay. Stevie Wonder. Yep. Yes, little Finger, yeah. fingerprints. Uh, I think fingerprints one and two was the was his first song. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, there were there, uh, there were folks that were writing, uh, as well as performing. But for example, um, the Supreme the Supremes were just performing. They weren't writing their own stuff. But Golden Voices, ama- amazing female trio. I don't know um, that. I have never heard of Golden Voices. Oh no! I just mean the quality. Oh, the quality. You're saying, yeah. Oh, you, oh, you're saying oh, them as a as a uh, a trio. Yes. A trio. Oh, the yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, second to none. Um, I'm try- um, I'm racking my brain here with respect to Martha Reeves, who is still around here. In fact, um, she actually spent some time on on Detroit City Council. Uh, Which would be more than the Vandellas. Right. Right. Um, but I think off the top of my head, I'm not sure that, that she actually wrote, but that, that she was you know, just just um, the performance side. But there, but, was again, a, but there was a political angle coming from artists such as Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Wilson sure. Pickett. Right, so that that was there, and there was, and I and I think I've read interviews with Marvin Gaye that said actually Barry Gordy was against releasing um, some of those songs for the way they were um, for what's going on, and I'm trying to think of there was two albums back to back. I'm I'm blanking on their names right now. The, well, and, and two, um, I think you know that's what precipitated the um, um, we'll, we'll call it the the change, you know. Uh, Marvin, Marvin Gaye moving to to the West Coast and and taking a different path uh, because there was some some flack on doing something that was a little bit more heady. Yeah, well, you know, too. Again, um, you know, early on, Barry Gordy uh, he he put all of his artists on a, you know what you and I would call a tour bus today. Um, it looked pretty Spartan if if you examine the images, and um, it was called what the Motortown Review Tour, and they they toured they toured the U.S. during the summer, putting on concert pick wherever they could, you know, um, state fairs and and other venues, but it was. My perspective on this is that Barry Gordy, he was he was promoting racial equality and unity at a time when that was the last thing on people's minds in this country. You know, we're we're at the heart of the civil rights movement, Brown versus Board of Education, all kinds of all kinds of crazy things happening. Uh, this is two. The, re- the reason that we have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech on recordings is because 
he came to Detroit before going to Washington, D.C., and he gave he gave that speech here. Barry Gordy took him aside and said, I need you to come to Motown tomorrow morning before you go to D.C., and we're going to record it. I did not know that. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, and two, um, Gordy, you know, we all know the Motown label, but Gordy, again, the market saturation and how he distributed, there are numerous labels under the Motown umbrella. Um, there, so for the, there are, there's a label that's devoted to spoken word. Um, he recorded um, a very young Dick Gregory, a young Bill Cosby. So all, all of those black comedians from the, you know, the late 50s, early 60s that couldn't get recorded elsewhere. Uh, so besides Motown, there, you know, there's the Tamla. Uh, I'm trying to think of some, uh, but he had named them for family members. But there was spoken oh, word. It was comedy. Um, just absolute, um, absolutely amazing, man. But I digress. You know, I feel so sorry for Willie. I hate to see any baseball player having troubles. But that's a great sport for my people. That is the only sport in the world where a Negro can shake a stick at a white man and won't start no ride. <laughs> Well, now, don't get me wrong now. We're doing all right. Now, at the rate we're going 10 years from now, you might have to be my color to get a job. <laughs> and let's face it, they're not making man tan for nothing. Keep <laughs> me right, I'll get in there and raise taxes on you. <laughs> I mean, now, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't mind paying my income tax if I knew it was going to a friendly country. <laughs> and we have a lot of racial prejudice up north, but we're so clever with it. Take my hometown, Chicago. I mean, you can't see it just, just going in there. When the Negroes in Chicago move into one large area and it looked like we might control the votes, they don't say anything to us. They have a slum clearance. <laughs> you do the same thing on the West Coast, but you call it freeways. <laughs> Anybody here from Chicago? Where do you live in Chicago? South side. South side. Whereabouts? North side? Lawrence, yeah. How long you been away? Seven years. You're in a hell of a surprise if you ever go back. My brother just moved in there. We should get back to we should get back to Motown and well I think how we, yeah, how I wanna, we eventually get the punk. Well, well I think we got to Motown <laughs> because there was things going on. There's a lot of musical things going on at one time, and you had said you know look in in the beginning of this interview you had said look at the well, look what's going on politically and socially economically with everybody. And then you, and then listen to the music. The music will tell you what's happening. So if you have a garage rock movement sitting next to Motown, right? What's one? And Barry Gordy's goal is to promote racial equality in a city that's with white flight and 
crime and the Motor City is losing its 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 motorness, right? It's changing. And he's promoting that. And then you have something else going on in a proto-punk or garage scene going at the same time. All these things are existing, but they all have, they do have a certain agenda, right? So if the Motown agenda is racial equality, what was, what genre was sitting next to that that was promoting something different, but also a sign of the times at that time? Well, look, Laurie, let's, let's think this through. Um, in, in, by, by the time we are in, in the late 60s and coming into the 70s, we're seeing what we call fragmentation in the market with respect to rock music. So we have British invasion bands, so Beatles, Stones, and, and, and. We have the Motown sound, right? We have uh, the beginnings of country slash southern rock. So we're getting so we're seeing pick the um, oh um, Leonard Skinner, um, ZZ Top. Uh, so as we move on, you can you can think of others. Then we've got um, I'm going to call it the folk rock folks. Uh, so let's see, we have Jefferson Airplane. Well, that's that's kind of taking us a, a slightly different direction. Um, let's see, Joan Baez is still out there doing her thing. Judy what about Barbara, Collin. Barbara Dane? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Joni Mitchell. So we've got that crowd. Um, James Taylor, Carol King, so, so you've got that little nucleus. Then we've got the psychedelic folk like Hendrix. And then we're coming to what you and I would know as glam rock. So this, And then art rock, so with the Moody Blues and, and others. And so with glam, yeah, Alice Cooper coming out of Detroit and, and others. So there's, in other words, there's a lot of stuff happening and then how then how do you how do we if you will to categorize artists like Bob Seeger uh, that that are doing something well something a wee bit different uh, so but 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 there was a i guess so you take those little groupings right was there an right. overall ethos to each one of those? So, you know, I think you think about Bob Seeger and that movement. Bob is the working man, blue collar. After I'm list right, I'm working in a mill. I'm there's songs I can relate to. It, it feels, I would say it's it's early Bruce Springsteen kind of thing, right? That, oh, right. Yeah, that's sure. the way that feels to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jimi Hendrix thing is that psychedelic psychedelia for me would be expand your mind, man, and let's go to the let's go with Alex Huxley and let's get on the bus and let's you know let's experiment with our our inner journeys through through LSD and music. Does does that does that make sense? Like that that's what those feel like to me. But I could be completely wrong here, so that's why I'm. What what's your feeling on that? Am I completely off base here with that? No. Well, what I'm too. What I'm pointing toward 
is that because of the wide variety, the musical variety, whether we're talking what the Beatles and the Stones and, and the King, Sandy and Dan, are putting out in the late 60s into the, into the early 70s and everything else, there's so much music at this point in time that there's really not one particular rock genre that takes the lead and, you know, serves as, as let, you know, let, let, let us be the demise of Motown. Uh, what happened with Motown, it was 1971, and Gordy moved the operation to California, to Los Angeles. Again, this, this is Barry Gordy being a visionary. He wanted to get into film and film soundtrack, so music for film. He saw that as, if you will, the, uh, the next big thing. Thank you, Elvis and Presley. That, Thank you, Elvis Presley. Right. There you go. And, and he, did, he did very well. Admittedly, there are a lot of folks here that were not so happy when it, when the operation pulled out of Detroit, and too. But that's that's not only the artistic. That's that's also, if you will, the cash register ringing. Because let's face it, Mo, Motown made a lot of money for the city of Detroit. Absolutely. No, no two ways about it. And so, there I. I would say that there were probably some bruised feelings, uh, but you know, Motown was not was not founded to be a charity, and and the music business is is what it is. It's a business, and I remember, yeah, the first time I heard that when I was a young nineteen year old, wide eyed, right. Uh, Aspiring musicians like oh, it's not a business; it's an art. It's not a business, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a business, yeah. but but art, but but art and commerce have always gone hand in hand. So that's not something that I think that you can you can separate unless you actually get into. I'm only doing it much like the the CBGB scene, right? Where we're just doing it for to do it. I have something to say. I'm going to see if I can do it. And I have the, the cojones to get up on stage and play my songs and right. I mean, but other than that, that those are like, and I guess that's where that, that's what for me, like, I don't want to, I want to keep on the Motown thing for a minute, but I don't want to, but I think that it's important that we, when there's a movement of people just doing art for the sake of art with no intention of making money, that's right. That's different. But if your art starts selling, there's the commerce is going to fuel that it's going to get bigger. And let's be honest, I do want people to hear my songs. That's the whole point of performing. And so if more people like your art, whether whatever your medium is, commerce is going to help do that. And it's going to have some effect on it. Correct. I mean, we, I mentioned earlier, like Michelangelo was paid, right? <laughs> like he wasn't just doing it to do it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And too, admittedly, you know, yeah, he had to he had to chase after his money, but he eventually got paid. But no, here, if you think about it, uh, 
similar, you know, I mean, you know, Barry Gordy was looking to the Brill building. Saying, ah, I see that formula. I can recreate that here. So here in Detroit, um, Don was and others, they were, uh, you know, they were essentially doing the same thing. They they were, were you know, experiencing or, you know, viewing the, the activity at CBGB's and going, hey, wait a minute. There are all these bands with these just wild and crazy names. There, there ought to be a way that we can do that here in Detroit. There, the talent is here. The bands are here. We know this. How do, how do we galvanize? How do we organize? How, you know, how, how do we get it off the ground? How do we make it happen here in Detroit? Uh, and if I recall correctly, Don was formed a band. I think they were called the Traders, and and they, you know, off they went on their merry way and and started playing, you know, single engagements or one offs and uh, and tried, you know, tried to build something. And. As he moved forward, did he form? What did he do? Like what other? Uh, he was also in the was not was right. That was his other band later on, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But like so, so he's in the Traders. He's moving around. Where does Don was go from there? Does he start producing? He starts. Does he start finding bands? Does he start? Um, well, his um, I absolutely know um, nothing about Don was. So like this is also for me a learning thing about. Um, so I mean, his so his thing was was the bands, but it was um, oh, it was Jack Bannon that that and two they were they were kind of friends cohorts um, that was handling the management side and essentially became you know punk rock promoter, uh, which probably wasn't the best way to approach it. Um, but. So Jack Banyan was promoting the punk bands at that time. Is that what you're saying? Right. With, and, and was Don was helping also? Was that, he was part of that. That's how they. Yeah. He, yeah. So he was, he was, if you will, the artist side. Uh, and two, they, as I recall, I think they actually made, made visits to CBGB's or would call and, and say, you know, yeah, what's, you know, what's happening? Uh, you know, and, you know, is the, if, is the band playing and, you know, could you just hold the phone out so we can hear what's happening in New York? <laughs> you know, we want to hear the sound. Um, Did they promote so specific that, clubs in Detroit? Did they? Well, interestingly, so what happened here, uh, the the, uh, the the places where music was, punk was getting its start here um, there was uh, a gay uh, a gay club in Detroit it was called Bookie's Club Eight Seventy and that's where single engagements or one offs for punk found a home. See, they had some, uh, again, I'm, I'm back to it, to, you know, to my mantra here. Detroit is a hard town for music. Those bands, if you, if you were playing in that kind of a band, you could work 
your band could work as a cover band, right? Or you could a freelance in what we would call an unestablished venue. Okay, so yeah, just just a place, right? Uh, any place to play, right? Um, or you could work in an established club, but the audience wouldn't be particularly um, amenable to the music you were making. So that means these bands might be playing in like country western bars or biker bars or uh, and anywhere anywhere they could they could get a gig. So finding a home at Bookies uh, was a good step forward. Now, two Bookies. Uh, it, in terms of, of you know what kind of an audience you could you could um, muster up, it was small. You could only put maybe two or three hundred people in the venue. So then, ha- trying to make a, if you will, a going concern, right? In other words, just as as a friend says, you can't pay the bills with cool. How how do you generate enough revenue to make it worthwhile? So the punk scene had to start casting about for more more and different venues and larger venues. So, but the plus side is that that bookies became that place where they could play, and it had its uh, coterie, right? Its its clique that played regularly. So. There so there were some interesting groups from the time. Uh, groups like pick um, the Ramrods, uh, Coldcock, the Sillies, um, Algebra Mothers, that that played bookies regularly. There was another one too on um, Cyanide, and. They're credited in Detroit with with putting out the what we like to think of as the first punk single that uh, carried the title. I got a lot. You have to love this. Gutless Radio. Radio, wait 
And then on, on the B side was my doll. And they, uh, and too, this is an interesting thing, just the way our industry runs now. Um, they recorded, they self-recorded, right? So they had their own indie label. Uh, it was called Tremor Records. I don't think they did too much after that, but too, a lot of these bands at this point in time, it, it was about expression. It wasn't necessarily a profession for them. Right. So, so but, com- uh, commerce is not on the radar here. We're not, they're not looking to make this their living. Like you said, this is a way to express themselves as a sign, as a, as a sign of the times. Oh yeah, and if too, if you think about about what was happening at this at this place in history, you know we we are coming off of assassinations. We are coming off of the '67 riots here that caused what I think forty some million dollars in property damage and. 40-some people killed and almost 2,000 injured. Then, not too, not too far down the, down the timeline, you've got the Stonewall riots in June of 69 and, and some other, just two. Um, so we've got white flight, all, all of this, this crazy stuff happening politically. That, that, plus, plus you have the Vietnam so, War going on. You know, I mean, we have things happening on the national front also that young people are looking at, right? There's a, there, I mean, yeah. you, have, you, have, you have local turmoil, and then you also have national turmoil going on also, and you're also seeing these things now on TV, which you didn't see 50 years ago. True. Yeah. Yeah, it was not unusual back then to, to have, you know, uh, the six o'clock news um, full of footage of the Vietnam War, and then too. So, can, can, gay can, rights. You can, can I interrupt for one second because I um, I don't want to forget this, and I want to just this came up in my last interview with John Flanagan, who I know here where I work, uh, where I teach tennis, I actually coach him tennis, and I had, his family owns uh, some newspapers on the East Coast for the last few decades. And I had said to him, is the Vietnam War the first time young people, teenagers, got up and actually started protesting because of the media attention on it and where they actually started questioning their government locally and nationally? Is, was, is that the first time? And we actually we sat for a minute and really thought about it I feel like it holds some water. I don't know what your thoughts are, but is that really the first time young people were like, hey, and that is why this kind of self-expression starts coming out? Oh, absolutely. Well, too, uh, and this was also that time, uh, so for example, on Students for Democratic Society. So those, so that crowd protesting. Um, out on the West Coast, this is the time of the Watts Prophets. And two, if it has 
fascination for you. Um, Gil Scott Heron's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. It's an amazing musical compilation of social consciousness in the mid to late 60s. Uh, so when you have, have a few minutes, definitely take a listen to it. Uh, okay, I will. Absolutely. I'll, I'm going to play it right now. to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew eat hog moths confiscated from the Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the court from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Woman Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Yes, uh, and you know, for me, the, the sad thing is, a lot, of, a lot of what he, and I'm going to call it rap. Honestly, I like to, I like to point this out to my students as a progenitor of rap. A lot of the social ills that that he raps about in this particular uh, piece. 
are still with us today. So he references the riots in L.A. He references uh, you know, the, the racial divide. He re references poverty, um, economic disparity. It's all there. Two, where we are on the timeline, um, you know, we're taught uh, 1970, um, the campus unrest at Kent State, and the National Guard comes in, and they're not using rubber bullets, they're using real ones. And here we are just this week in the news, um, Syracuse, right? Syracuse yep. University. Same, uh, same thing. Admittedly, his, history is cyclic, but this isn't what I had in mind. <laughs> it's not the kind of cyclic I like to envision. You know, and, uh, and, and but people, um, you know, and, and I, as I was watching this um, documentary on, on punk music, I was actually reading, I read a review of it before I watched it. And the author was saying, yeah, 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 they keep bringing up the same thing about, you know, the war and blah, 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 and, you know, civil unrest. As if punk music was, or any sort of music, is just kind of shows up out of nowhere. It's not influenced by anything, or as if no one has any thoughts. And oh, here it is, right? It's like the big bang of music, right? And you're like, no, that's not what happens. These things are. And when we talk about um, what's happening in an area like Kent State, Nixon, there was a Houston plan. There was a plan uh, following the weather underground. There was, there's quotes of Nixon saying that we need to quell this young, this youth movement because it's in direct opposition to what we want to accomplish as, you know, in government and what we want to do, right? Our, our manifest destiny and the way we're going to go about doing it and procuring our resources and fighting the Red Scare. So if you're going to question this, we're going to put this down. And these things are documented. And to this day, people are like, well, you know, our government would not do that. Like that's, you're like, you sound like a conspiracy theorist. And, but that did go on. You know, we made in the interview in this documentary, Iggy says, yeah, everyone started getting whacked out on, on heroin because it came really cheap. Well, it became really cheap because the government made it really cheap. The same way they put crack into black neighborhoods, right? The same way they sent dope over to Vietnam to keep the soldiers in line and, and keep them from losing their minds. These things were done, and they're continually being done. And as a society, I feel like we, we tend to throw our heads at that time into the sand the older people, and in these days, we throw our heads into our phones, and and we don't are really not paying attention. And I have always looked, like you said earlier, I always look to music as the way to pull my head out of the sand when someone says something like, "Wait a minute, maybe that's what's going on." And I don't think we can underestimate anything with with that era of of war of civil unrest, of all those things, they are major drivers of genres of music. And what you just said, it is it, nothing has changed, really. But no one's writing about it. This, this is a concern for me also. So this is another, you know, fork in the road. But do you know what I'm saying? I don't feel like that we have a movement anymore of any youth that 
is complaining about anything going on. Mm, that's, yeah, that's, Trump, yeah, for me, for me, Donald Trump is a scapegoat, right? All, all he's done is, I mean, what he is doing is what every president has done. The only difference is he has pulled the curtain back and said, I'm actually going to do it in broad daylight, right? If you go back to every president, they've, every single president has, has done some really bad things and it's how they are marketed. And I think that Trump has just said, you know what? I'm actually not going to do that. Here you go. And so it becomes really easy to criticize something when it's glaringly raw and in your face. But wasn't that punk music, right? I mean, that it was it was glaringly in your face and aggressive and there was no sweetener put on it like Motown. Right, it was. It's not the in the ghetto with Elvis singing it. it it's in the it's in the ghetto, like ah, in the ghetto, or it's done not like that in 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 maybe in a in a different way, but it's still in your face. And I don't. And in your face to me doesn't necessarily mean the abrasiveness of the sound. I, I know. Right. I, I know. I went on a tangent there, but do, I think it, I do think it's all connected for me in that we have all these things going on and, and like you said they're still going on but yet I don't feel like there is a youth movement anymore I don't see it which then to me if there's not a youth movement will something else like punk emerge will something else come out of this that will get people excited or get people to start paying attention more and doing something yeah there and um, and and there's a question. Uh, I wish I had the answer to that one, and I don't. Do you, I'd like to. Do you feel at the time? <laughs> do you feel at the time? Did, was the youth movement actually smaller, and it just got a lot of attention? Right. Maybe I'm making this bigger than it was. Again, just like actually, it wasn't that big a movement, and. Most of the youth at that time actually didn't care, and it really was just this small group of people, these artists, whether they be folkies or punk music or proto-punk or whatever genre they're in, that got some attention. And it was enough on the national stage that it seemed like it was a a bigger movement than it was. We're talking about it like it was a big movement, but was it really? Oh, yeah. No, it was, too. If you think about it, I mean, the campus campus protests and the movements, those were national movements. That, you know, uh, so, for example, the campus protests at Berkeley, um, at USC, um, goodness, there were, there were campus protests here at, at UMich, uh, right? So University of Michigan. Uh, and then... Two again, Kent State, and I'm just picking. I'm just cherry picking the list here, um, but you know NYU, Columbia, and and and. I think too that the time was a bit different. Again, we're coming. You know, we're coming off of three assassinations. Boom, boom, boom. One after the other, right? So you've got Martin Luther King, you have JFK, then you have Robert Kennedy Jr. 
all within a very short space of time. And like people after World War One, where, what, 8 million lost their lives in the first mechanized war, that feeling of Weltschmerz, the world weariness. Same thing at this point in the 60s and in the two. Remember, uh, we really never got out of Southeast Asia after the Korean War. Or, honestly, the end of World War II. There was just a very short span of time between the end of World War II, um, what, let's say 46, when troops came home, and then we were back in Korea by the early 1950s, and essentially we never left. So that, that sense of, of, again, world weariness, Weltschmerz, and okay, enough is enough. And then two, seeing there, three, and I'm going to throw Malcolm X into the mix. So that makes four assassinations. Right. right. And we can go on with, with others, um, you know, Medgars and so on and so forth. But I think, honestly, that youth movement, and, you know, that was, that was the next, you know, those college kids then were the next generation of leaders. And collectively, they just looked around and said, oh, no. Oh, no, we're having none of this. And they they chose they chose protest and if you will all of the, all of the '60s counterculture um, activities as the way to make things happen. You saying world weariness, and it's just it's sticking with me because I feel like that I think you just those two words together makes makes it all come together for me that when we've had this point of world weariness where you feel like everything all around you all the time is just seems like you're getting beat up, right? Even if you're not, but like emotionally, morally, you're getting beat up. You're watching this, these things happen and witnessing three slash four assassinations of prominent figures on that, that cross both racial divides, Right. Two white mm-hmm. people assassinated, two black people, and major leaders. So if they can be reached and killed, what's to stop somebody from doing that to me? Like who's in charge here? What's going on? What's happening? <laughs> right? And there's going to be some sort of emotional thing that comes out, which then would fuel Marvin Gaye to say, I can't keep singing I heard it through the grapevine. I'd like to sing something else here. What's exactly. what's and going on? My, my God! Yeah, and and musically, it, it it can't be the same. We we've got to do something here to get people to pay attention. But two, if you think about it, um, yeah, Marvin Gaye and what's what's going on or war, war, are just as relevant today as they were back then. Sad but true. And for us, again, you know, uh, music, music is barometer of culture. This early phase of, of punk is, is that visceral reaction uh, to what's happening 
societally, whether it's political, economic, uh, social, across the spectrum. So, in other in other words, it's that uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And the guy chucks the TV out the apartment window. (laughs) Yeah, uh, network. Yes, network. Right, Albert Finney. Uh, That was Albert Finney. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a great movie. And and so that that's, I mean, think about it. If we look at the punk rock scene in the UK, I'm kind of flipping, you know, flipping through years here to the '80s. There was there was massive youth unemployment in Great Britain, and so yeah, so no job, no money, and 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 again, I'm angry, I'm upset with with the monarchy and the system, and so here's how I'm going to express. Thank you very much, Sex Pistols. God save the Queen. But not really. <laughs> right, right. Right. Um, you know, so incredibly, yes, um, you know, very, very angry, sarcastic lyrics. It's like, hey, you know what? You are the problem, not the cure. Get on it. Take care of this. And if you look at, if you look at Detroit, and white flight, um, those are the Coleman A. Young years when he was mayor and essentially... Uh, what I would what I would describe as as a robber baron mentality, or there you go, unjust enrichment. In, in other words, yes, lining his pockets and draining the city coffers. It was it was very similar here. Um, but you didn't see that, but because there was nowhere to play, though. N- not that the also, I mean, the UK also didn't have places to play either until it started really the scene started happening, but. You guys didn't have the explosion that, and not that New York had an explosion because New York had the same issues as far as places. Because I'm, I know you guys had like Frank Gagans. I think was one place that bands could also play. Um, you know, but like, how many punk bands were there to Detroit? That definitive, they could be like, oh yeah, there's this this thing going on, or. Again, was there not this thing going on? There's just a few bands playing, and it happens to start happening in a couple places, but not really, right? Right? Because I feel like we talk about punk music, but like it was just basically this small little thing in the Lower East Side, something happening in Detroit, a little thing happening on the West Coast, and something that had a bigger impact in England. But it was only for a couple years, because then everything got re-christened as New Wave. Right as they those bands started coming over here, and the musicality, their 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 playing got better. So there was sure. a shift because you have these bands that are playing together all the time. By default, they're going to get better. Well, that's the hope, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, and, well, I think that people say you know that that a lot of times when they saw they saw the Pistols, well, they weren't very good musicians. They were extremely tight. So is the Clash, you know, and people underestimate that with bands sometimes. Like, well, you know, ACD. I'm, one of my favorite bands of all time is ACDC, and I especially love Bon Scott. And people would say, oh, well, it's, you know, every musician always says, oh, ACDC, it's two or three chords, but that's on purpose. And they're an extremely tight band. So when bands, even though maybe their knowledge of or their prowess around the, their instruments is not, you know, Jaco Pistorius. It doesn't matter because if they're extremely tight and the end, their time is there and the energy is there, 
that band is worth its weight in gold, especially if you've got a singer that can emote and, and deliver the message that that artist or that group is trying to, to convey. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I guess what I'm saying, though, is, is that are, are we making a scene that really wasn't a scene? Uh, like So we've, the, the Motown scene was a major scene. Absolutely. Disco was a major scene to dominate it. Punk music, like grunge was a major scene. It took over. It, it knocked, you know, hair metal out of the, it, it decimated. Yeah. It, it ended it completely. And I think at the right time, because you couldn't go any further. You needed something else. But punk music, what are we talking about here? I mean, New Wave is a different version. Are, are those the same bands? Are we is New Wave the same thing as punk music, but rechristened by Seymour Stein because of Blondie, right? Because I think it was him that coined the phrase New Wave because he thought that punk was too aggressive that people wouldn't like that. Well, and two, and two um, you know, I mean, punk was very working class. Um, you know, very, very earthy, very, if you will, of, yeah, of the of the streets, and too, I can uh, I can recall being in um, in London in the fall of of 1980, and you would you would see the guys in their Doc Martens and right uh, and their Mohawks um, painted the colors of the rainbow and right safety pins through their nose the whole the whole nine yards. It was it was. An artistic statement. Uh, here, uh, again, Detroit being um, you know, um, a hard town for music, a lot of the Detroit bands would would be like the the openers, the warm up bands for the national acts that that were do. In terms of punk, that we're doing doing well, um, but here, no one, none of these bands really made the cut, with maybe the exception of the Romantics, and it too, and it's not, and it's not that the Romantics weren't Detroit, but they didn't, they they weren't invocative of the scene here. So remember when I talked about the Beatles, you know, the, the early earthy Beatles before Brian Epstein, and then they get the, the suits and the ties and yeah. Yeah. Right. And, okay. That, that's kind of what happened with, for example, groups like the Romantics, you know, um, they would, they would get hired and then their management would take them, you know, out to, to, suburban Birmingham and, and, and get their hair done in, in punk rock haircuts and create, um, you know, create, um, slick advertisements and, you know, press kits, right? So that was, that was the back in the days of when you actually had a press kit with your, your flyers and your business card and the band's resume and, and, um, ooh, back then it would have been, it would have been like a, a VHS or a beta tape in your kit. Uh, so no, in other words, they, you know, it was the, Hey, we'll manage you, you know, we'll handle everything. Um, and those, those are the bands that, that got tours, um, 
and same equipment. And in other words, the beginnings of punk here that started to become homogenized. Ooh, that's a dangerous place to go, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So, so you know, lose, losing the spark that lit the flame to begin with. So there was because of the homogenization, there was no chance for a scene to build because it would it would switch right to a national thing, which then takes the identity out of a city. Yeah, and then you know, two, uh, you know, the, uh, the the bands that weren't making, you know, making the leap, and uh, they they yeah they they were struggling. Uh, I think one of the guys said, you know, uh, you know, they all had day jobs. Whether they, you know, they were working at at you know, pick. Uh, 7-Eleven or, or um, McDonald's, you know, right? They had some, some kind of a day gig. That, Te- that teaching, was... teaching tennis. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <It's> still doing <laughs> it 20 years later. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, that, that, so that, you know, they got to, they got to play and practice their craft, but they still, but they still had to have a bread and butter job. Right to right to make the make the rent in the car note, uh, but yeah. So it's yeah, it's an it's an interesting scene, uh, and I think it's it's the punk the punk scene here in Detroit paved the way for the things that came to follow. Okay, and in my head, I'm thinking Jack and Meg White. No, the garage band scene here, which was, which was huge. Way, way bigger than the punk scene. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and too, I mean, the music uh, that was that was here was very, very good. The quality was very good. Uh, and a lot of folks here kept saying, "Okay, sooner or later." Someone's going to discover Detroit, like so, like the scene in New York and L.A., but it didn't come to fruition. And how you know if if you're in a band, how long can you wait? Do you know it's uh, well, real life takes over. Real, well, real life takes over too, right? You start working a day job, you're getting older, and like, do I, you know, do I get married? Do I have kids? Am I? You know, I I used to be an alcoholic, and now I'm straight, and you know, I'm playing, still playing to six people, and you know, your friends get older, and they're not going to go see you anymore because they have other things going on. It's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What you know, what what is your shelf life as an individual artist, and then what's your band's shelf life? Um, you know, pick. I mean, there were there were bands from other cities that would actually too. Um, one of the other venues. Uh, that came to be for for the scene was um, St. Andrews Hall. So in in downtown Detroit, that actually belonged to um, Saint, the St. Andrews Society, which is a Scottish benevolent society. Um, they eventually sold the hall. The society did uh, because for a while they had leased the first floor, which could accommodate maybe twelve or thirteen hundred. But 
the aftermath of one of those events was more than, if you will, the, uh, the trustees of the society could bear, and they decided they decided to pull up stakes and they're going to move to the suburbs. But St. Andrews, not only being that venue for Detroit punk rockers, they were having bands from other cities and, and too, uh, out of the U.K. coming and playing there. So they had bands coming in like Teenage Head from Toronto or, or Scoffish from Chicago. Uh, and and they were packing St. Andrews and making money hand over fist while the Detroit bands were, you know, they were underdogs. Um, so, the, so the bands from elsewhere were coming through, playing the venue, making money, and making a reputation, even though their musical quality was, in some instances, as good, in other instances, not as good as the local talent. So you feel like that Detroit bands got the shaft? To a certain extent, they were not promoted. They were not, you have these, and you keep coming back to the level of professionalism, musicality, and this working incubator of a city for, for musicians in all styles. And other than Barry Gordy, who actually used it and, and promoted it, that was not, that did not happen for other for the punk bands or for those or any kind of artists like that. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and two, um, to a certain extent, every band, every artist, you have to be the captain of your own destiny. Right. So, um, if you are, um, if you are just, if you will, as a band, if you are just, you know, sitting on the couch with, with, you know, uh, with a red, white, and blue and the remote control in your hand, nobody's going to come and, and offer you anything. You have to get out and hustle for it. Uh, and, yeah, you you have to make sure that, that every aspect of your product is marketable. Uh, you know, too, if you look at some of the record covers, um, you know, the jackets from that era coming out of Detroit, um, they're... Well, if I if I were going to give them a mark, I'd give them a C minus to a D plus. You know that visual image, right? I mean, it it's got to, it has to be eye catching. Do you know what? Again, yeah, here you go: the record or the sandwich, the record or the sandwich. Uh, two, unlike the, the techno scene here. There were no real record label scouts here in Detroit. If we lay claim to anything, it's probably that that we are the most overlooked city with respect to music. After Motown? After Motown, but too, I mean, remember Motown. Oh, he was local. Right, was local though. Right, he he did it locally. Correct. You're right. So I should. You're right. So no one's. Outside of Detroit, no one's paid attention to Detroit, is what you're saying. Exactly. That that it's yeah, um, it's very much an, a niche market, and it's too. 
it, it was it's very hard to, if you will, um, you know, to, to scramble over the hedge, so to speak, and get a national reputation. So, I mean, the, the Romantics honestly were the only ones to, uh, you know, to leave Detroit at that place in time with any kind of, of a substantial record deal. Um, and two, you had all of these bands that, you know, we, we've given so much talent to New York. It's crazy. Again, tip right through the market. The market here is small. It's, uh, in fact, actually, one of my friends describes describes the scene here as as an as an incestuous community. <laughs> so why do you think that is, though? Why do you think that these bands that Detroit is overlooked like that? Now, there's an interesting question. Um, I think in some respects, we, as a musical community, we, we set ourselves up to emulate and compete, for example, with New York, with L.A., Chicago, and then pick um, Nashville, Memphis. That's, in my opinion, that's playing a loser's game. There, there's, there's no way that you can compete with the New York scene or the LA scene or the Chicago scene. If you try, if you try to play their game, you're going to lose. You have to do, again, you, you have to distinguish yourself. You have to do something different you have to find that niche in the market and exploit it and honestly from from my perspective that's what other than other than I'm going to I'm going to stick with the romantics that the others did not do you can actually if there's a great uh, archive called the Detroit Punk Archive and yeah. right, and you can actually listen. You can listen to interviews with Mike Skill now, um, where he talks about the early days of the Romantics and what they were doing, and all of this is being driven by archivist um, Rob St. Mary, and he's done a phenomenal job on organizing yeah, all these to, bands. Um, Do you know him? Yeah, and he used to be um, with one of the um, was it the Free Press or the News? I'm trying to remember which one. Which after the joint operating agreement, they're now all one. I think he was with the Free Press. Well, but well, yeah. well he's put this, this archive together, and he's documenting, which is phenomenal, all these bands. But yes, it's funny when you talk about the artwork. You're right there, there like isn't it's awful. It? there isn't like any actually. But he's got some great interviews. He's got the songs. It's it's really well done. And I wish every city would do this. But you can then also hear the musicianship you're talking about, the the humor in the songs. You can experience what was there. And what's hard though is now looking at when you look at it and you go through it, you're like. Why didn't that band make it? But that makes sense then. If 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 you're if you're competing with bigger bigger cities or bigger scenes and not carving out your own like Barry Gordy did, right? And someone's not promoting that as the the, the Detroit scene, 
right? If you're just being cherry-picked here and there with a band like the Stooges or the MC5. And again, who'd had absolutely, the Stooges had no impact until a decade later, right? When after, after the fact, um, and, and, I, and I'd be hard to press other than, and then, then kick out the jams, the song. I'm, I'm actually not an MC5 fan. I think the energy was there and the musicianship, but I actually don't think that the songwriting was there for the band. I don't think they were very good songwriters. I think they were phenomenal musicians and entertainers and performers, but I don't feel that the MC5 said the way they said it didn't come across. And I, I don't know if that's because of John Sinclair or, or what, but... I didn't feel like the MC5, and I've listened to all their albums many times, and I've tried to like them, you know. And there, but there are bands here on, on the Detroit Punk Archive. When you mentioned like the Ramrods, I'm like, oh, I love them way better than the MC5. And they did one song, you know. They they released the Corvettes yeah. released what one hit, one song, not local, not a hit, but like a local song and a 45. And I'm like, oh, I like that song. That's great. I'd much rather hear that than an MC5 song. And they're half the musicians that the MC5 are, you know. So I always think that that's but I'm a songwriter, so I'm, I'm maybe I'm listening to it from from different ears. You know, I mean, you can listen to it as a musician saying, "Oh, he's a great guitar player or a great drummer, bass player. They're really in the pocket together." But I want to hear a song also. Right. Well, and and two. Um, all right. Let's see if I can articulate this. So you've got a you've got a lot of folks at, at this place in time that oh, let's start a band, right? Um, and have no idea about what's entailed. In other words, how to manage a band, how, right? Um, both you know, both musically and and professionally, right? So, and two, I tell my students for every Beyonce, for every John Legend, there are. Thousands of folks out there that are just as talented, but are, there you go, working at McDonald's and, you know, sing, singing weddings or do right? That they're, they're doing one-offs on the side. And a lot of that has to do with, again, so the knowledge base, the experience base, and two, here we go, the ambition base. In other words, if you can't get up off the couch and hustle every day, you're not going to get anywhere. And at this point in time, with some of these punk rockers, um, they were, you know, they were college-age kids. They were living in their parents' house. They'd go play a gig. They'd come home, and um, you know, they'd come roll in at three or four in the morning and have a couple hours sleep. And mom would be up, and the Eggo waffles would be on the table. Right. right. So, what incentive is there if you right if you if you've got that safety net? To go out to go out and hustle and to make the band work, you know. Um, and two, if you think of it, it's also the economics. You know, um, a lot of the bands here. Uh, again, the, the, you know, you've got a, you've got a lot of, of young folks, you know, college age kids that were still living at home, didn't have jobs, and they didn't have. 
financial wherewithal or the commitment long-term. Okay. Oh, yeah, we're going to start a band, right? Uh, and, you know, there we go. We're, yeah, we're going to have a, yeah, we're going to start a band and it'll be fun. It wasn't, we're going to start a band and we're going to record and we're going to tour and we're going to do all, you know, we're going to play festivals and we're going to have a long-standing reputation and we're going to be famous. I think that too is, is one of the distinctions here in Detroit. And that. Well, I think also, right. But then you look at bands like, um, and it's cliche because everybody brings up, but they're like the Ramones, right? They lived in Queens. They, they had a look that they wanted much like the romantics, right? They, the, they were going to have their uniform. They're all going to be a Ramon. And, but it was all of them were do or die. Like we're living this, right? We're we're doing this. There was no, I mean, Didi's you know giving blowjobs to to make money on the street, right? He's mm. th- th- these guys are doing things. They're saying, hey, not all of them, but like you know, saying that there's there's this thing when you're on the Lower East Side. I'm gonna always bring it back to New York, just so you know. So when you're <laughs> when you're when you're on the Lower East Side, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna live here. It's in the seedy city, and you know and and I didn't even say even like Deborah Harry. People give her a hard time, but you know she she walked away from her family and actually lived it, lived it, and with no intention of going back. And I think that was the thing also of like with the New York scene with Patty Smith and what was going on. There was yes, they were coming from a suburban background. Even like McNeil when they started Punk Magazine with John Holstrom. Yes, they're from Connecticut. Yes, but they walked away and was like, you know what? I don't want the safety net anymore. The safety net is what's hurting me, and I'm going to go do something else. And when you walk away from something with no intention of going back, I agree with. I'm agreeing with you. I think that's different, and I think maybe that is what cut that apart from from Detroit. Is that when people left their comfortable suburban life of Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and went into the Lower East Side and said, okay, I'm an artist. I'm going to be a part of this scene. And then you also had Andy Warhol at that time around showing that also and the Velvet Underground and and these guys. go. But it felt from my research and my reading and my listening to interviews, maybe there wasn't a financial plan but there was a plan to be an artist and under all circumstances. And there was no other plan. There was no waffles waiting for me when I wake up in the morning. And we're going to write, most people would just say, well, I'm not going to sleep for four years on different mattresses all across in my friend's apartments because that's all we could afford at the time is a can of beans and, you know, crappy right. apartment hop. So I think that actually has a lot of validity to what you're saying. And I don't know, maybe in that's, that's, why those bands tended to be more successful? Sure. Well, and and two. Um, so the, um, the folks that were going to Bookies and the other venues that, that sprung up in Detroit, um, Harpo's, Lily's, and Hamtramck, um, the Silverbird Saloon, Nunzio's, Todd's, and um, Clutch Cargo's, those weren't people from the hood. Okay. They were they were not folks from the projects or that were receiving uh, welfare. They were suburban kids 
uh, or, or young folks, right? So I'm going to say the, the 18 to 35 market demographic that likes the music, that wanted to be a little cutting edge, a little bright, and that would go to to Harpo's or Lily's or, or Bookie's and pay the cover and 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 buy drinks and have a good time. They were also, if you will, the, the kids from the suburbs, again, that, that college age, right, eight, I'm going to say 18 to 25, that were still living in, in their parents' lovely suburban homes in Birmingham, Bloomfield, Gross Point, blah, 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 that wanted to come into the city, hear these bands because of youth angst and, 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 and be a little little bit edgy so they could essentially brag to their friends that they did this. But it's not a lifestyle. It's a cool thing to do. No. Right. It's, it's, it's buying and cool. It. You're buying cool is what you're for the moment to make yourself feel better about yourself. Right. And two, unlike, for example, L.A., where you have a radio station like K-Rock that is actually playing, right? So you can get airplay for your music. That wasn't really happening here in the same way. Um, we had, uh, let's see, at that time, there were two FM radio stations, WABX and W4, that were, that were playing more more progressive rock. That's how I would describe it. But they weren't necessarily playing punk. And if they were, they were playing it, if you will, in the non-peak hours. So in other words, if you, if you were listening to, well, the other coming out of Detroit at the time was WRIF. Um, probably RIF was maybe the more conservative of the three. But so all all three FM rock stations. WABX was the wild child of the group. Uh, they always signed off. And yes, this is this is in the in in the time when we actually shut down at midnight, and then pick picked things back up at six in the morning. WABX would always sign off with Jimi Hendrix's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner which was, was essentially a middle finger gesture to polite society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, so, pick New York, L.A., Chicago, where you had, had stations that were playing punk and you had that, that avenue to promoters, better opportunity, uh, that didn't really happen here. Um, it was, it, you know, well, too, we're coming to that time where the radio stations were being snapped up by corporations. And, you know, the, the mantra at, essentially was, okay, so if, if you want to, to grow and develop your radio station in Detroit, you need to be playing more Rush, more Bob Seeker. Uh, more journey, right? More Boston, yeah, for, right. For, forget, for you know, stay away from, if you will, the the fringe element music. Oh yeah, um, that that there was you know kind of a vacuum 
after after the punk scene, uh, and that it it took a while for bands to reinvent or you know reconfigure themselves. And two, you know, uh, in term in terms of the market for the punk bands, you know, uh, we were we were essentially Wednesday's child, right? Wednesday, Wednesday's child is full of woe. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> or or, may, or maybe Thursday, right? Thursday's child has far to go, and you know, just all of the all of the pieces weren't there. Uh, you know, no one no one was particularly interested in what was coming out of Detroit. Everyone was looking everywhere, but not necessarily here for the latest trend. Uh, and two, remember, there's was also that reaction to to punk, right? That you know, punk rock is dreadful. You can use some other words, but you know, insert your own adjective. And it particularly was dreadful coming from Detroit. Uh, it's like ah, it's nothing here. 